0: Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic, after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we're both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. Shh,
1: I think we've got a tom working, Greg. Nothing like hunting turkeys in the bottoms. But Brad, I thought you said... There were no turkeys in the bottoms. Well, for the record, that's correct. Turkeys are theoretical, at
2: least along the lower Wisconsin State Riverway, (laughs) but in most other bottoms as well.
1: Don't ever hunt them there. Got it. Hey, Marcella's not here yet. She said we're crazy to crawl out here before first light. I think the nettles are at least three feet high already. She said she was going to enjoy it. leisurely breakfast and a large mug of coffee and join us at a more sane hour. That's good, that's good. Plenty of birds to go around. So, hey, if anyone is wondering why we're out here in the slews and silver maples this morning, today on Silvacast, we'll be talking with Marcella Windmuller-Campione, professor of silviculture at the University of Minnesota about the challenges of silviculture in lowland forests. Marcella's research spans the gamut from the black ash swamps in Northern Minnesota to the Mississippi River floodplain forests.
2: There is a lot of interesting work going on in lowland forests. And, and you know, these were ecosystems that not that long ago, um, we really didn't see a lot of stuff, people weren't working in them. And they frankly just aren't that well studied or well managed. Now, if Marcella could
1: get here before that Tom does, I think you just scared him away. Today on Silvacast, it is supported by the
0: Society of American Florists. Time out, time out. Society of American (laughs) (laughs) Florists.
2: No, no, no. Society of American Foresters.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. It's an easy mistake. It's an easy mistake. Society of American Foresters. Since 1900 SAF has been the cornerstone of the forestry and natural resource profession. Its members are practitioners, researchers, teachers, advisors, administrators and students who believe in advocacy, respect, science, honest communication and professionalism. Join today to branch out and connect to this expansive network of professionals at eforester.com org
2: this is a day i thought we'd never see greg real sponsors <laughs> excellent excellent
0: hey we're we're back on and guess what we're back at silvacast with marcella welcome to silvacast marcella
3: yeah thanks greg thanks brad
0: yep we're, we're really happy to have you
2: marcella we're we really enjoy your work and, and we're always appreciative of having you right next door in in Minnesota. But uh, tell us about your role in Minnesota at, at the university. Uh, how did you get there? What? How, what's your story?
3: Yeah, so I am an assistant professor in the Department of Forest Resources at the University of Minnesota, um, and I think I have one of the greatest jobs ever. So um, my official split is 50% teaching and 50% research, um, but Anyone who does silviculture work knows that you don't get anywhere unless you're also doing that other 50% of outreach, which is what I really enjoy too. So um, it is an amazing split. Um, So I've been here since 2015. Yeah, so I get to teach the silviculture class um, on campus and then in the field up at the Cloquet Forestry Center. I get to work with students on other uh, projects, both undergrad and graduate students. And then my research, I yeah, I get to explore anything and everything related to silviculture, which which literally then does mean everything. So um, I think that's one of the best parts of silviculture is um, you get to touch so many different parts of the forest and the disciplines and bring so many cool people together. And then the other part is um, then connecting with folks in the field through field tours, um, through the National Advanced Silviculture Program, which I'm a director of. Uh, for the first module, and then through um, the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative with Dr. Eli Sager doing webinars and all kinds of other um, outreach, and hopefully soon enough again back in the field um, looking at stuff in
0: person. So, Marcella, I know uh, in the profession of forestry today, you know, we recognize just the critical importance of encouraging more women to follow this career path that we're all on. And you not only went into forestry, but you entered arguably the greatest of all scientific fields in our opinion, of course. Right, Brad? Right. No argument here, Greg. No argument here. And that is silviculture. Um, So how did you get interested to begin with in forestry?
3: Yeah, I. well, there's no argument that silviculture. I I always start uh, every class or almost anything I teach with silviculture as the center of the universe. So, because uh, why not? Um, and it is, uh, in my opinion. But um, So I got into forestry. I didn't really know what forestry was, but um, my parents, we would go on these long, multiple week vacations to different national forests and different national parks. As I was growing up, we hiked, we biked, we fished, we did all kinds of different things. And I grew up Uh, within the city of Chicago and then we moved to the northern suburbs um, when I was in grade school and then um, that where we lived um, in northern Illinois they were doing a lot of uh, restoration so the county uh, forest preserves were doing a lot of restoration uh, for oak savannas and uh, got involved and oak savanna restoration means uh, removing buckthorn Yeah. (laughs) So, um, there was a youth conservation Corps um, that I started working at, at 16. And then at 17, after a year of doing it one summer at 17, they gave me a chainsaw and
1: nice.
3: I was kind of hooked. Uh, and so then I did, um, my undergrad at Michigan tech in Houghton, Michigan, um, in forestry. And there's a lot of things that was so interesting, but then I took silviculture with Linda Daigle and like. All the light bulbs went off. I'm like, this is this is it. This is what I want to do. How do I do more of this? Like, how how do I how do I do this? And so um, I'm grateful that I was able to do my master's with her at Michigan Tech, um, looking at northern hardwood silviculture, um, a lot of habitat typing and understory dynamics, and then um, got a little taste of the West uh, at Utah State. Um, so I I think in terms of getting interested, it was um, that background. In terms of staying interested, it is really just, I can't say how much it was so critical to see women um, really early on within my academic career doing um, what I thought I might be interesting, interested in, which was becoming a professor and seeing that and seeing how they taught and seeing, seeing that representation was really critical. And so I think those are those are all the pieces, and um, Tara Ball at Michigan Tech has some great work on on the importance of visual representation.
0: Well, my daughters will be glad to know that they pulled all that buckthorn for a reason, then <laughs> for for inspiration. Yep.
3: <laughs> yeah, inspiration, or I hear hard work, or just yeah. I, <laughs> what not to do.
2: Was that Lake County that you were that, that where you lived?
3: Yeah, that is Brad. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yep, so I worked there when I was out of school, I worked with the uh, Lake County Forest Preserve District, kind of doing that same thing. All my friends were surprised when I got out a point that there were trees in that area, so. Was, <laughs> yeah,
3: most of them that we didn't want, right? Red exactly.
2: Maple, yep. maple <laughs> was the devil. So, yeah. And so it's kind of a, that's a big transition, right? So going from the Chicago region to Michigan Tech and then out to Utah and you've seen a lot. And so we're we're big fans, you've worked in a lot of different types and and, and we've really kind of appreciated some of the stuff you've done in lowland situations. And so here in Wisconsin, that might be like our, our black spruce, um, swamp hardwoods, uh, bottomland hardwoods. How did you get involved or interested in lowland forests?
3: Yeah, well, so maybe I'll touch on like those Northern lowlands first, and then I'll touch on some of those bottomland hardwoods. Um, in a in in two separate stories
1: Uh,
3: but i overall i find these systems so so interested interesting and so relatively understudied and and now having done research well done a little bit of research but spent a lot of time sent a lot of grad students out there i fully understand why they're understudied, (laughs) Uh, but there's such interesting and critical ecosystems so those northern lowland systems whether it be black ash whether it be black spruce or eastern large and those are sites that are going to be impacted by climate change are being impacted by climate change um and just have this suite of ecosystem store uh ecosystem services especially when we think about carbon storage um and uh, wildlife habitats and they're kind of like they're kind of unknown from thinking about um, how not only stands develop in that stand dynamics, but then if we have that information, how do we utilize that in silviculture? And how do we think about adaptive management? So kind of building both of the pieces together with the hardwoods or like the floodplain forests along the Mississippi. um, I have a great contact Andy Meyer with the US uh, Army Corps of Engineers. Um, And he slowly kind of worked in of like, oh, come down and visit. There's some really interesting things. Or do you know that? that?" And then our second visit, he's like, yeah, we're getting on a boat. I was like, oh, my gosh, I've never done civil culture on a boat. This is awesome. (laughs) And so (laughs) it was like this slow, like introduction. And then like just this complex system um, that, again, is understudied, um, provides critical ecosystem services. Um, and get you on a boat. Like I I did not think I could do civil culture from a boat or like have civil culture, like have a boat to transport me to the location for a field study. So um, I was hooked.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that's exactly right in terms of those systems. They've, at least in the lake states, they've really been ignored to a large degree. I think part of it seems like as foresters, access has always been really difficult so sometimes we just don't necessarily do harvesting in those systems uh and then over time it's just led to a lack of silvicultural knowledge about how do we deal with these but now with all these issues like emerald ash borer and climate change and carbon storage and we realize the importance of these systems now it's really fun to see that more work is getting done in these and I'm glad Andy lured you down to the Mississippi because he was scheming as soon as you got hired to help him out with floodplain forest work.
3: Yeah. Between Andy and then like these northern systems, I now own at least one inflatable boat in my lab to be able to access those (laughs) those sites because of the ditches and just the access issue that you brought up greg yeah i now own at least one inflatable boat and now we've added um, life jackets too because of the water levels can be so high just to make sure we're following all the safety precautions so things i don't think i ever expected to have in a field kit to get to a Mm -hmm. site Um, are now part of of my grad students' field kits.
2: Yeah, so you've worked in, so the swamp hardwoods, black spruce, and then bottomland hardwoods. And maybe we can just talk a little bit about each of those and kind of pick your brain about what you've seen, what you've learned, maybe where we're going with some of those things. Because I think, like you mentioned, these systems really don't play by the traditional silvicultural rules that we've kind of thought about, like the disturbance is going to be different or at least maybe just foreign to a lot of us. So maybe starting with swamp hardwoods, Uh, you published a paper uh, where you looked at regeneration and you were looking at black ash stands kind of you know what are we going to do with emerald ash borer and one of the key takeaways from this was that that there were several different natural systems that worked
3: yeah i think it highlights the range of black ash and the range of variability in those systems so one of those key takeaways is um, a black ash stand is not not all black ash stands are created equally or are the same. There's all types and a range of conditions. And some of those ash stands that are, that are still typed out as black ash actually have some mesic hardwoods or are are slightly richer. Um, And those are the sites where we saw really great regeneration post, um, post clear cut harvest, post clear cut regeneration harvest. Um, anywhere from five to seven or eight years. And we saw a lot of aspen, a lot of balsam poplar, and just a whole suite of different species coming in, which was a completely opposite response of those black ash stands that are really low low productivity, Um, that water table is up there. I mean, I I could tell the difference between um, the students that were sampling. When they went into those richer sites, they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to be like, we're gonna be here for a while. Like we gotta measure a lot of stuff. And then when they would go into those swampier sites, they're like, oh, this is easy. <laughs> like, there's yeah, we'll be like, on a here. few trees. But they were always wet. So it was like this trade-off of like, would I rather be wet for a short amount of time, or do I wanna measure a whole host of aspen um aspen resprouts that are maybe an inch or two in diameter?
0: And in those ash stands, did you see differences in the regeneration between those methods?
3: yeah so each of them, so yeah, there was differences, and um we saw greater regeneration um when when there was light, so light was was a key factor in regeneration, so in those gaps um and um a hard thing to characterize is that diameter limit harvesting is is removing the best and leaving the rest um so While there was adequate regeneration in those diameter limit harvesting, it's not something we would recommend or suggest, Um, but that that light factor in the group selection, having those gaps allowed for regeneration, the clear cut when they're on um, richer sites with that mesic hardwood had great regeneration of other species, and even even when there was a clear cut on those poorer sites, there was was, there's there's a good amount of regeneration of black ash. And, and that's I guess what in the past that management has has maintained is ash on on black ash sites. I think it's just now thinking about if we if we want to maintain those systems and the ecosystem services in in the face of EAB what what else can we do especially if we're thinking I guess the goal of that study is we're not going to be able to replant everywhere or or um, replant artificially. So whether it's seeding, whether it's artificial regeneration with um, bare root or containerized stock, what are our other options? And that, that way, those sites that are most vulnerable and also can't be regenerated through other um, natural seeding options, maybe we target those for the artificial replanting or enrichment planting. Um, so. Yeah, that was the goal to see see if there's other options to allow foresters more tools in their toolbox.
0: I know the the big fear with those systems from a foresters perspective is we're gonna swamp the site by removing too much of the, the overstory. And maybe that gets to a little bit of that site quality thing that you're talking about um, in terms of what that risk is. Can you say something about the risk of of swamping these sites is it variable depending on that site quality?
3: Yeah, and I think that forester is going to get a feel for that site. So um, one of the things um, we talked about, and in Minnesota we use the ecological classification system. So I mentioned that mesic hardwood. So that that's a certain set of vegetation that has that are related to richer, um, higher quality hardwood sites, and so the same thing in um, Minnesota or. Michigan and Wisconsin, the habitat type. So, um, walking the site in the summer and seeing what's there. We also looked at, um, depth or like how the, the soil, so that depth to peat or that depth to muck layer, I think we call it. And it's basically, it was using a rebarb and just kind of seeing like, does that sink all the way down? (laughs) like it's yeah, really like that is really mucky or uh, or, um, or or do we have kind of like a richer soil and like what what does that soil look like so I think it's using the tool like using as many factors as you can from like what's in the overstory pre-harvest what do you what are the species you're seeing in the understory and, and what are those soils like to really give you an idea of what that what that post-harvest um, condition might be or, or that fear of swamping out. And I think one of the other factors we saw is residuals didn't have a large influence on regeneration. So I think if there is that fear, maybe maybe it is leaving more residuals. Maybe it's thinking about residuals in terms of seed tree or a shelter wood and like having those as reserves and not only the seeds they produce, but also the hydrological processes um, so I think I think there are there is options and flexibility when we think about managing these stands in the face of the EAB.
0: So is that depth to muck? Just so I'm clear on this, uh, the depth of the muck or depth to mineral. Uh, those sites with deeper muck layers were wetter and maybe more hydrologically at risk. Whereas if you've got a shallower muck to mineral, then maybe that was a little richer and a, you said a little more diverse in terms of regeneration and maybe less risk. Do I have that right?
3: Yeah. And I think how you explained it, it was perfect, Greg, like that depth to mineral. And we, we called it depth to muck because I think muck is a pretty fun word to say.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yeah, like how how far down do you have to get to that mineral soil or where where mm-hmm. is that? and just like what, what that looks like. Yeah.
2: Did that play a role in like a post-harvest competition that you saw on some of these sites? Would Is it kind of intuitive, which would have more or less competition?
3: So we, we were at these sites at various years post-harvest. So it could have been as soon as I believe five or six years, but it could have been also longer. So we didn't get to see a lot of that really early post-harvest competition. What we were seeing is like, now that now that these are established, and that was our goal, so who's who's made it like what does establishment look like if we're thinking about these are um these these have a future um they're they're generally over an inch or two in diameter, but if we think about those really mucky kind of swampy sites, they have that characteristic of a lot of um grasses and sedges and alder and and that environment that that is associated with with that change especially that change when we talk about a clear cut and that removal and the change in the hydrology and change in um all those features so um if if other regeneration was there early on we don't we don't know um it was probably a pretty harsh environment to to survive as a seedling and and it makes sense why black ash was was the winner i mean they are they are just so well suited to that environment
0: i know in wisconsin And I know it wasn't in your study, but we found that the strip shelter woods seem to be a good compromise in terms of leaving residual for hydrology, but also getting that light layer uh, for regeneration, as well as a little more accessibility by the way you cut those. Yeah. Uh, So that was just something that we've observed through the Wisconsin trials.
3: Yeah, I think that makes sense because a lot of the peatland systems, they Um, have historically recommended the strip shelter wood. so it seems like a common thing, especially um, in weather systems that idea of both access and then um, light and then. um, yeah but still maintaining some some overstory trees for multiple multiple reasons,
2: and I know you guys also looked at you know if we think about things that are maybe a little more not quite controversial but maybe just like gee I don't know, should we really do this one. One we might talk about would be clear cutting in these systems where we might have differential responses on different sites. And are are there things that forester should keep in mind when considering if if, if it's on the table, like clear cutting in sites like this?
3: Yeah, I, I think it goes back to knowing your site, and that's something a forester is gonna know. And it also goes back to knowing your goals and objectives um, and, and thinking about what are the options. Um, and so these, all the study sites from our from our work were part of organizations management. So these were not part of an experiment. We were revisiting them. Um, so I think at some level, it's really exciting to see something different. It also represents a risk, right? It rep- and as an academic, like I can talk all kinds of things theoretically, but I'm not the one on the ground that has to go, back to it necessarily. I'm not the one that has to justify this decision. I'm not the one that will have a phone call either from someone that like, hey, I was visiting this or like, this is, this is my favorite property. What did or, you
0: do? <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> um. So I think it comes back to a lot of a lot of um, weighing those trade offs, um, and also thinking about stakeholders and thinking about those management decisions. Um, but with with EAB, I think EAB has made it, there, there's no one easy solution, right? There's no like, okay, we can do this and we can maintain black ash, right? I think that would be the ideal goal. We can mean if we do this, we maintain black ash or we reduce the risk or increase resilience. But my gosh, EAB going down to one inch in diameter, right. doesn't, it, it, it changes like that. That is effectively a clear cut what, they're, what EAB is doing. Um, so I think it's then thinking about, okay, what are the ecosystem services we want to maintain, or what is the range of, of of potential, and then also the timeline. So how long are we okay with potentially this site being in this stage before it maybe changes into a different stage or, or, or evolves, or what is the regeneration window we're okay with?
0: one thing that strikes me about those systems, last month we talked with Mike Walters about Northern hardwoods and kind of this, maybe obvious but not so obvious thing that uh, there's not a lot of seed source always for these other species that you want. And for me in the black ash swamps, that really strikes home in terms of, sometimes you just don't have the seed sources
3: yeah and i think that's one of the pieces that i hope kind of moves more from the research angle to the operations and just like even thinking about not only the seed source but the type of stock like maybe if we want to have more success not only in black ash and kind of swamp hardwoods but also bottomland hardwoods we got to be thinking differently than um 1.0 or 2.0 stock like we're used to in in more upland systems um maybe we need to invest more because then there is a higher chance and we can plant less. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's really rethinking like what we've used in upland systems is really different than in these wet systems and uh, being creative and thinking about that is going to take, it's not only from like the management perspective, it's then also the catch up of like all the operations and all the things that support these decisions from from the management of like, like you said, do we have seed source? What is that seed stock? Is it available? How much? And like, when when do we plant? Should we plant in the spring? Or maybe it's better to plant in the fall based on water table. And and just all these decisions that seem so clear cut in uh, in a hardwood or an upland or hardwood system where it's like, okay, we know it's going to be this, this, and this. And then the spring, we can get that spring rain and, and it will just do great. And it's like, it's a completely different rule book
2: yeah yep it does this you know maybe just picking your brain a little bit so i think when we come to these systems that are we we might consider them a little more fragile maybe because of water table or things like that we tend to be a little more where we would veer away from even age systems it sounds like here we are our hand is kind of forced a little bit right like our emerald Dashboard, it's kind of effectively giving us even age management, but maybe we need to be creative in how we apply kind of response to it.
3: Yeah. And I think it's also thinking about the timeframe. So maybe there's sites where an even age system on those sites that are slightly richer. Okay. Wow. We can get Aspen. We can get some other stuff. And that gives us more options maybe on those weather sites by implementing a group selection with the, with the unfortunate, maybe understanding that I'm only going to get one cutting cycle in. But I'm at least going to restart some of the system. And hopefully that's enough if and when EAB gets there, it's enough to then allow that other part that we weren't able to harvest to move to. There's a seed source, maybe we've done it early enough where those those patches are um, mature enough to reproduce either sexually or asexually. but I think it's then thinking about those options, and and always right in every single management situation in civil culture, an option is always do nothing. But in our case with EAB, that do nothing represents represents a real choice that that is gonna have that is gonna change.
2: Well, it sounds like for uh, managers, then we need to go out and buy a tile probe, make sure we know <laughs> that depth to depth of muck or depth to
0: to the mineral soil. Yeah. That'll be a big help. Well, I think, you know, we're familiar with assessing the vegetation in the uplands, but you not only have the vegetation component, then you have this huge hydrology issue going on that you have to assess. And that's new to foresters to a large degree like and I think that things like the habitat typing and uh, looking at the muck layer, I think those are really great tools for starting to assess that.
2: Marcela, you've also been involved. So in, in other situations, you've been involved in black spruce management, which I'm really fascinated by. And I think I'm most fascinated because I've never actually been involved in black spruce management, you know, it's kind of like looking at systems that you rarely ever see. But in Minnesota, you see quite a bit of it. Um, and, and I know the work you've done is kind of looked at alternative silvicultural systems in that. And so maybe backing up a little bit, what would be, what, what are standard silvicultural systems in black spruce?
3: Yeah, um so black spruce is just I think it's just an amazing species that can do so much and so little at the same time. Like these trees can be 100 plus years old and like 5 or 6 feet tall. Um so it's just amazing like I think that's the other piece with all these wet systems. They're just amazing like how species are adapted to live there. Uh But so with black spruce, this is a huge component of of the forest systems in Minnesota, um, especially for um, management on public lands. So in kind of the current um, common way that black spruce is managed, um, it is managed with an even age system. So a clear cut regeneration harvest um, followed by aerial seeding of black spruce. Um, there's a regeneration check um, depending on the health of the stand and a few other things it could be as soon as one to three years um, but generally around that five to seven years Um, and then it's left to left to grow so rotations around 60 to 120 years depending on the site index and site quality and and a few other things Um, but so it's a it's a pretty much like they regenerate, and then and then there's this unknown of like what happens or like how how like what's going on in these stands, which is just so interesting. Yeah,
2: yeah and not knowing anything about those systems. So, it, um, what is so and and I think more and more now we talk about trying to have our management kind of be informed by natural processes, right? So, what is the disturbance regime, or how did these systems work? So, what does disturbance look like in in those kind of systems?
3: yeah, so they were um these stand replacing fires. so fire was a component of these systems um and and there is like there are some ranges, but I think I think there's um they were mostly stand replacing or mixed severity fires, but then there's also these small scale disturbances, including windthrow and Eastern spruce dwarf mistletoe that would create gaps and patches. so. I think it's it's a combination of, of both. So a clear cut does do a good job of emulating that larger um, stand replacing disturbance, but not, nothing can replace fire, right? Nothing nothing can replace fire. And so um, there is this hypothesis that one of the native um, native diseases, Eastern spruce dwarf mistletoe, um, was somewhat controlled by fire. And that as, we're, as we maybe have reduced the use of fire uh, in these systems, are we seeing potentially more impact from that mistletoe? Mm.
2: That's interesting. Greg, Greg, somewhere our good friend Jed is his head turned when, when you mentioned fire and Black Spruce. I'm sure he's saying
0: <laughs> that's why we should it be always burning. Does. Yeah, he's like a pointer dog. His head goes up when someone mentions fire. Yeah. Um, just a shout out to you, Jed. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, So I imagine, so the clear-cut system emulates those large-scale fires, but probably not as good a job at emulating more of the moderate-scale fires or maybe some of those other patch type of disturbances that um, you mentioned.
3: Yeah, and I think it also, like the aerial seeding that maintains the site maintains the species, um, but it creates a relatively uniform, even-age system. So it, it creates these Um, what I think are very, very pretty stands of black spruce with moss and and all of relatively similar age, similar diameter, similar crown structure um, that are just, just beautiful. Um, But that probably represents one part of like that continuum of what that forest cover type looked like. So thinking about these other species, including Northern white cedar and Eastern larch, um, birches, uh, balsam poplars, um, alder—just this range of potential other um, species from that boreal forest that that may have been able to take advantage of different types of disturbances or different light levels or the severity, severity, and all that. So, yeah, I I, I think I think there's pieces that that are hard to emulate if we're using one type of system.
0: And you have a paper that looked at a really old study which i love to look at old studies and like kind of dig them up and see you know 50 years later what's happening now so i think that's really cool that looked at maybe some other systems in there what was learned from that look
3: yeah i i also love those old boxes and um Brian Anderson, who is now with with Wisconsin DNR, um, was was that um, grad student and researcher on that, um, as well as Matt Russell and Brian Palak and Doug Kastendick. Um, And so I think one of the pieces that we found was, so there's multiple, when there's this great, great study of different types of treatments, including a group selection, a thinning treatment, um, a single tree selection, and one of the one of the what remained when we got were able to come back um to do the remeasurements with enough replicants um was a shelter wood as well as a strip clear cut and a patch clear cut. Um and though and those were true both the shelter wood, it was not a shelter wood with reserves, um, and the patch and strip clear cuts were were fully implemented too. So um And so in looking back um, at that data or remeasuring that data, um, we saw the shelterwood had a greater amount of species diversity um, as well as size diversity. Um, So it just gave more options. It provided different different opportunities, Um, whereas the um, clear cut strip and the clear cut patch were more uniform. And so I think in thinking about if what we're doing right now under our current management scenarios is creating relatively uniform and homogeneous stand structure and composition, maybe a shelter wood is something that can create something different and provide something different on the landscape as well as provide different options. Um, I think a piece that that would be different here and what we talk about in the paper is that um, unlike a shelter wood that's implemented all the way to, to main going back to an even age system, um there's the potential for a shelter world with reserves of like clumping the trees that were left or or scat- or even scattering them and and just accepting like you're not going to come back for them, but those trees could provide great wildlife habitat or future down dead wood
2: yeah I, and the thing that fascinates me about like conclusions like that, kind of tying those old studies to the new stuff is that. <clears throat> I bet if we went back and picked their brains, those weren't the assumptions or things that they would have come up with in something like this. And so it's it's kind of carrying forward new eyes, new things that that's that's kind of the the, the secret sauce in silviculture is we get to do the really long term stuff that other disciplines just don't get to do.
0: I'm envisioning a little bottle that says silviculture secret sauce on it right now. <laughs> I don't know why. I just am
3: I do too, and almost something you could pass down to someone, like, yeah. Here, yeah. here's yeah. all the answers. We're gonna,
0: that's an idea, Brad. We might be able to package that up, you know, a prize or something. Yeah, we'll work on it. Silviculture secret sauce. The secret sauce. I think that, I think the other cool thing, and we've been talking about this in Northern Hardwoods too, is just the importance of maybe diversifying the silvicultural systems that we use across the landscape. And you're talking about that, Marcella, about, you know, maybe, Uh, The clear cut and aerial seeding is is fine and that's provides one sort of structure, but you know diversifying that silviculture into other systems might provide other structures across that landscape and, and so I think that's kind of just cool to think about from a forester's perspective is where we implement stuff and and why that might be another reason to start looking at alternate systems.
3: Yeah, and I think. I think there's just options, right? It's not saying let's like a clear cut with aerial seating is wrong. It, it's saying like this, right? This gets one, this gets one desired set of future conditions. Maybe there's maybe we can think about other ones. And so, like, like you were saying, Greg, yeah, like thinking about within each system, there's so many options and range of variability, and just like being okay with this might look a little different here. And and that can be really valuable if we think long-term.
2: So maybe we saved our our best for the last year because I think the other system you've worked in is bottomland hardwoods. And on the Mississippi, you've looked at uh, tree species flood tolerance and you've been thinking about climate change. Um, We spoke with our, our last guest, we talked about the right tree in the right place at the right time. And it looks like you're kind of thinking about that same thing along the Mississippi.
3: Yeah. I think the Mississippi and those bottomland hardwoods are just like amazing systems. And also ones that like, I feel like you could do the exact same thing in the exact same place and have a completely different outcome because it flooded or X or Y or beavers or something like there always seems to be something that like, you're not accounting for that will change the trajectory of a stand. Um, So I think the idea of the right tree in the right place is part of it, and then it's the right tree in the right place and the right timing like that timing factor is just so critical. Um, and I think that's one of the pieces that make it so interesting but also so challenging, Um, especially as someone um, some so from the academic side like that regeneration window or that timeline, or even just those factors that can go from establishment is looking good for five, six, seven, ten 10 years. And then you get a peak flood year, year 11 and you're reset. So it's so interesting from that academic sense, but I could see how, like, when I think about the actual management prescription, it's like, oh man, that is so, so disheartening sometimes.
0: Yeah. And it's not just the regeneration. It's implementing a harvest treatment with those periodic flood issues becomes a huge challenge. That's really interesting to me is just we talked about the hydrology in those swamp systems, but now we're into a floodplain hydrology, which is a lot different in a way. And we're talking about, you know, these periods of inundation and how that impacts the regeneration. I just think that just adds to this challenge a great deal.
3: Yeah, and I think it comes back to like these understudied systems. And so now we're playing we're trying to play catch up. We're not only trying to understand how how they function, but we're also trying to then use what limited understanding we have about them to then think about how do we how do we adapt them to climate change or with EAB or or invasive plants and especially along floodplains like re canary grass. So we're trying to not only understand. What we know about the systems, but how do we use that then to make management decisions about what is happening to the system so it's almost like it's trying to figure out which question to ask first or which how how do you how do you how do you think about management when we know so little still
2: and it, it's interesting so we, we talked about like depth of mineral soil when we were talking about some of those um, lowland hardwoods and here, you know, it's just wet all the time, right? We've got water always there. Um, and so now, and I know in, in bottomland management, we started to talk about uh, inundation periods or maybe these microtopography in these areas. Does Could that help us with trying to decide like what tree to put in, in different places or how to manage for different places within the bottoms?
3: Yeah, and that's what we're starting to work on. So myself and Andy Meyer and Molly Van Appeldorn with USGS, Um, We're starting to try to tease some of that apart with some of the projects we have through um, a CESU agreement with the Army Corps of Engineers and University of Minnesota. Um, And so we we did some planting last year we we sample the last three years now we've collected um, a huge amount of sites um, and taken tree cores on all those trees so um, lots. Thousands of tree cores are sitting in my lab being processed um, to try to get at that pattern of growth and inundation. And working with Molly, who's a hydrologist, and thinking about what we know about these systems and trying to link those together to to see how those factors all play a role. Um, but but those are the pieces that we keep coming back to is like that microsite and that 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 in like that change in small scale topography or patterns or or even how the river um, deposited sediment those can all be pieces that then influence that regeneration but then you add a factor like deer and you're like oh man that adds another complexity of like did that deer just walk over there and like we lost that ceiling because that deer found it
1: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah and i imagine that even must come into play too like so the Mississippi is one creature, but then you get into like I know here in Wisconsin we have rivers that maybe are more sand dominated, and so that plays a role in kind of that microtopography and what you would see in some of those places as well. Do you see? Uh, so so you see a lot of so you see these differences in microtopography. Do you see differences in how you might approach? Uh, so we would call it maybe competing vegetation or invasive species in some of those places too.
3: Yeah, well, I think it gets at the question of, like, with a lot of those invasive species, they're invasive because they're so good at what they do. And once they're there, it becomes just so hard to get back something from reed canary grass. Um, And there has been folks um, who have been looking at that. So I know Rebecca Montgomery and Audubon Center of, or Audubon, Audubon, yeah, um, have been looking at trying to restore um, those systems, and it's a challenge. So they've been, they've been thinking about different stock size, the density of planting, all, all kinds of different things. And I think our approach is a little different, or our goal is, if we can maintain an overstory and maintain that light and maintain um, a forest, can we make them more more resistant? to that invasion so if we can maintain those systems and be proactive in making sure we're getting recruitment or getting regeneration can we can we spend the money up front there and then not have to do more of that restoration yeah
2: and i would bet over time you'll see it just feels to me like just like you found in those lowland hardwoods where you had that differing competition and might be able to direct resources to based on that competition. That you know, in the future, uh, work like yours might be able to shed some light on that. in these situations kind of helping, maybe conserve resources to maybe where we really need it, as opposed to, you know, maybe places we don't.
3: Yeah, I think it's hard, and I'm not envious of managers making those decisions because it's hard to know: do you fight something that that you see there, or do you try to resist? Some, like, do you try to make sure at the other spot, or like, what is that combination? And so I think, I think, I guess on a positive note, like, I don't think foresters are ever going to be out of a job in all these, all these decision-making processes.
2: And, and you talked about these being complicated systems, you know, like with levels. And then now we throw climate change into the equation, which makes it that much more complicated. And so you're, you're looking now at climate change as well with an ask study in the bottoms, Correct.
3: Yeah, yeah, we have the first urban adaptive, adaptive silviculture for climate change study at Crosby Farms in St. Paul Regional Park. Um, And it is a wonderful, amazing group of partners and organizations. And so we have a resistance, resilience, and transition treatment. And I think we have 18 different tree species with multiple different seed zones across those 18 treatments, Um, just under 1,200 uh seedlings, but really I should call them saplings. Some of them are um about seven to eight feet tall when they went in. So <laughs> it was a whole different type of planting for me. Um but they're now entering their second growing season this year in 2021. Um and so yeah starting to look at um we what they look like in phenology, how they're growing, all those pieces. And I think one of the big questions is yeah, what what do our future floodplains look like and what options do we have?
0: So Marcella, this is a complicated issue uh, talking about wetland forest, bottomland systems. There's a lot of different aspects. And I think we just touched on those three major systems and just some of the things that I walked away with that conversation with as from a foresters perspective is not all these systems even not all black ash swamps are the same. And there's greater variation even across those wetlands forests. And from a forester's perspective, the importance of spending time to try to understand those differences. So assess your site and try to understand the implications of what the hydrology is there and you provided some tools maybe for foresters to assess that hydrology. And then use some of that information to tailor the silvicultural systems and the types of tree species that were capable of either regenerating naturally there or planting there. So it always kind of comes back to good site assessment, but that's what I walk away with, especially in these systems.
3: Yeah, I think not only good site assessment, but documenting any of the outcomes so we can think about those range of like, what what happened and not only what happened in the immediate kind of short term, but like what what happened five or 10 years down the line. Because I think those are, I mean, you all you all saw that in your Wisconsin trials too with with Ash and Black Ash. Um, I think that's really the heart of like it is um some of these some of these answers we won't know the long-term impact until five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. But if we have this information documented up front on the site and what happened, um, there can be really powerful then assessments after of like, oh, wow, okay, we did see this or or this is the range of conditions. So um, maybe it's not only know your site, but document, 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 and make sure so, like, make sure it's somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great message for all the foresters implementing silvicultural systems within bottomlands uh is to is to as you said document it make a trial out of it monitor it share that information because as we said in the beginning our knowledge level is pretty low in these systems at least in the lake states area it feels to me like too
2: like there's kind of an admission like when we talk about these systems that we don't work in a lot that we really don't have all the answers and so it just makes it that much more critical like if we had all the answers, we might still be asking questions, but they may be questions around the edges here. We're still asking basic questions, which makes it that much more critical that we, that we talk a lot about this.
3: Yeah. I think not only talk about it, but also have, for those who are, who have been working and are working in it, like be confident in the knowledge that you have, because if if you're doing that, there's things that Yeah, that we haven't documented and haven't shared. And, and that knowledge is critical to get out there among among managers, among researchers, among, among everyone.
0: I'm really glad, Marcella, that your position allows you the flexibility to work with us managers in the field uh, to look at these practical silvicultural questions. So I really look forward to more of that work and kind of what's going to come out of it. Uh, in terms of helping give us new ideas on how to work in these systems.
2: And Marcella, I really appreciate, I know, so Marcela, you work with the Great Lakes Silviculture Library and every fall you have students working on kind of these ideas or trials or things that people have done. And so I think that's fascinating too, because it's kind of getting them involved with people who are doing these new things. So it kind of shows them an example of, you don't necessarily have to do things the way they've always been done.
3: Yeah, no, Brad, Thanks for bringing that up. So, if any listeners are in the Great Lakes region or like the fringe area and have like prescriptions, they're like, "Oh man, I wish I wish I could get this up somewhere." Um, Let like shoot me an email, let me know, or Dropbox or something. um, Because yeah, there's always students that are interested in, um, and it's an amazing it's an amazing opportunity for them. But um, Mm -hmm. hopefully, it can be an opportunity to move that information from from paper or maybe computer or, or, your, or someone's brain um, out there um, so others can benefit.
0: Well, Marcella, thank you so much for joining us today on Silvacast. And be assured that Brad and I are going to keep bugging you to do a lot of different things in terms of helping us do our job because we need so much help over here.
3: No. Well, I look forward to hopefully being able to see you both in person as well as Colleen and others
0: yes. in, <laughs> yeah,
3: in the near future at some point yeah, yeah. and not just some, behind yeah. the computer that, screen. Yeah, that
2: we look forward to too. That'll be fantastic.
0: Well, take care.
2: That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, concerns, you name it, and share them with our listeners.
0: Brad, that was a great episode. I think we're going to be swamped with questions. Yeah, I like how you put the pun in there. Someplace Paul DeLong is smiling.
2: <laughs> well, I would have thought we would have been bogged down as well. That's my attempt. That, that's the best I got. But... This month, the the Dropbox is drier than a scrub oak in August. (laughs) So, hey, we need questions. Keep them coming. It doesn't matter. There are no bad questions. So let us have them. In any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you like Silvacast, please remember to follow or subscribe. You can find Silvacast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are found. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or comment if you want. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming.
0: Okay, Brad, that's a wrap and take care everyone. And as always, thanks to our team. Haley Frader, our editor in chief. Noah Lemaid, our IT master. Theme music by Paul Frater. And of course, thank you to UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.